Marvin Goldfried is a distinguished professor of psychology at Stony Brook University, where he helped develop the graduate program in clinical psychology. He's the co-founder of the Society for the Exploration of Psychotherapy Integration. Alan Francis is a professor of psychiatry and chair emeritus at Duke and was chair of the DSM-4 task force. Marvin describes the evolution of his psychotherapy orientation as psychodynamic, behavioral, CBT, and eventually integrative. He practices, teaches, and supervises what works clinically using direct and indirect evidence base. Alan describes his approach to psychotherapy as whatever works or no one size fits all. He was trained and taught at the Columbia University Psychoanalytic Center, but remains equally interested in brief, supportive, cognitive, behavioral, interpersonal, and family therapies. Please enjoy this week's episode. Good morning and welcome to Talking Therapy. I'm here with my long-term friend, Alan Francis. Good morning, Alan. Hey, Marv. How are you? And I'm Marvin Goldfried, or sometimes it's Marv Goldfried, um, depending on how I feel that day and how I feel about you. But I feel good about you, Alan. So let's let's see what we can do with the topic for today, okay? The, the distinction between self-observation and self-criticism. And I've only vaguely thought about this from time to time, but it occurs so often in in the course of therapy that I think it's worthwhile taking something that's implicit and making it more explicit and you and I obsessing over it, okay? Good. Have you seen the distinction in your clinical work, supervision, research? Oh, sure. And, And I've thought about it a fair amount in terms of how it fits in with Darwinian theory, evolutionary theory, and with Freud. So I'll provide some of the backdrop to your clinical observations. Okay, let me just start and then be interested in in what your thoughts are about about Freud's contribution. In, In the most general sense, we can think of both stepping back and observing or stepping back and criticizing oneself as a commentary, a commentary on our behavior, our thinking, uh, our emotions. So it's a commentary that we make. It's kind of a meta type of of thing. Uh, One is just observing and the other is criticism, criticism, but it's it's commentary. So what were your thoughts, uh, Alan, about? uh, Keep keep going on. Keep going a little bit and then I'll come in. Okay, I'll tell you what my thoughts are and see if it coincides with you. And I just had this, it was kind of an, pardon the expression, uh, insight. Well, I don't have to apologize to you when when I use words like that. Uh, But it was, epiphany is probably good, maybe awareness. It came to mind that maybe this is what Freud was talking about when he used the concept of superego and observing ego, where observing ego is just looking, stepping back and looking, and superego is stepping back, looking and criticizing. I think that uh, putting this in in a somewhat larger context, part of what Darwin and then later Freud had to do was explain how we control our impulses. So both were intrigued by the fact that we had lots of inborn impulses that, that might be 
counter-social, especially for Freud's sexual and aggressive impulses. And then the question was, how do these get controlled? Darwin had the most brilliant insight of all, one of the most brilliant insights in the history of psychology, that we inherited our social instincts just as we inherited our bodies, our lots of of our physical characteristics were shaped, all of our physical characteristics were shaped by natural selection and sexual selection. And he had the brilliant insights that so were our moral instincts, largely inborn and the result of, of um, natural selection and sexual selection, that we came from social animals and therefore we had naturally goodness in us, just as we had natural badness, we had natural goodness. Freud tried to explain it with the concept of, of superego and ego, that we he had a tripartite model of the mind with the id representing the, if you want to put it this way, the asocial instincts, the sexual and aggressive instincts, but that we had, we had an inborn superego or conscience that fought against the uh, inborn asocial instincts. And he also posited the concept of ego ideal, the idea that we had within us an image of the person we would like to be, and also that we had an ego, an observing ego, that helped to bring our instincts into relationship to the world. That if people just lived out their aggressive and sexual instincts, we would have chaotic society and they would be wiped out. And the, the part of the human condition was to have an observing ego and also a controlling ego, able to control our, our uh, asocial dangerous sexual and aggressive impulses. Now, let's try to fit that in with what you're saying. Okay, before that, did he say that or is this your interpretation? Did he say, who say what? What you, what you just said is very, very clear. Yeah, for the the um, the idea of social instincts, Darwin wrote a whole book on yeah. called The Descent of Man. And so he spelled out everything that we might find in modern evolutionary psychiatry about the evolution of, of, of altruistic, um, socially beneficial behaviors. Darwin Darwin figured out almost everything, and he had figured this out in eighteen. In the he wrote about it in eighteen seventy two. Uh, Freud's idea of uh, superego, of ego ideal, and observing ego. All of these are very clearly specified uh, in, in in works between um, eighteen ninety five and, and nineteen twenty. No, I read a lot of this stuff in graduate school. I didn't understand a word of what it was. For the you, didn't first... te- you didn't have me teaching the course. <laughs> that, well, <laughs> that may be true. But why didn't he just say it so that we could all understand it? But, but here, here, here's the thing. For the first time, and this, this occurred this past week, this is like after all these years, and you know, I was a graduate student in the 50s, his statement where it is, there shall ego be. It's like, now I get it. Now I get it. He's talking about self-observing certain aspects of oneself that are not working. Right. Self-observing, but also self-controlling. Yes, yes, yes. Not just watching. It's also being able to exert control over impulses. And and this is really the issue for today's discussion. But I'm still, pardon the expression again, fixated. (laughs) I'm fried for it. Um, You can't stop being a psychoanalyst in your language. (laughs) 
Yes, Return of the Repressed, right. It's the Return of the Repressed. The, um, seriously, folks, uh, the, uh, the notion of step back and observe those things about you that are creating problems is very relevant to our notion of psychotherapy change without the notion of instincts and all the other stuff. So if you take the content out and you talk about the structure of one's cognitive processes as it occurs you know, within the course of therapy, and I don't know whether cognitive science has, has studied this distinction as well, simply stepping back and observing can offer some control or some or bring about some change. Yeah, and, and implicit in this is, and, and to some degree explicit in this, guilt itself is not the healthiest way of dealing with uh, problematic behaviors. The guilt represents a failure of control mechanisms that are much more adaptive. Yeah. And the, Freud said that the superego was largely unconscious, like the id, like the inborn impulses, largely out of our control, and therefore often adaptive to the realities of the person's actual experience. So guilt is not, in most, we can discuss certain instances in psychotherapy where maybe guilt is useful, maybe even promoting guilt is useful. But by and large, guilt is not a very useful emotion in this context. It's much better to be able to observe oneself and prevent doing the behaviors that would otherwise make you feel guilty. So now I'm, I'm hearing you talk positively about self-observation, whereas in the past you have quoted, and I forget who it was, that the only thing about insight that cures is ignorance. But this, yeah. is, this is more, now you're saying something different. No, I'm not. Um, huh? You are. Both of those statements are true. The, the, uh, the guy who made it was Sean Dorado, and I think what he was criticizing was the idea that that some therapists, especially analysts, had that if you just explained the problem, it would go away. Uh, yeah. You didn't need a corrective emotional experience. But often you won't get the corrective emotional experience without the insight. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's let's go back to self-observation. So let me make some comments uh, about that. And believe it or not, when I was in graduate school, uh, one of the required readings was Wilhelm Reich's I'm not sure if it was 1932 or 33, book Character Analysis. Brilliant book, really fantastic, um, uh, because he dealt with clinical technique. And one of the things that he pointed out, he, uh, I mean, he, I don't want to go into the whole lengthy theoretical thing, but, but the bottom line was he said simply commenting on a patient's behavior as it was occurring in the session can bring about change. It's like, you say you're sad, but you're smiling, or look at what you're doing with your hand. And he, it was counter to theory, because in order to bring about change, you had to have, you have to work through earlier conflicts. So he was saying this was counter to theory, but he, amazingly enough, it worked. Okay, that struck me. Um, when I read that, fast forward to behavior therapy. Dick McFall did a study on smoking and smoking cessation. 
and it was a behavior therapy approach. And one of the measures of success was that patients, uh, participants kept records of how much they smoked. And what he found, much to his surprise, was that simply keeping records reduced the smoking. And this I saw as, wow, this is like what Rach recognized, self-observation. In the first instance, it's the therapist who's directing the self-observation, encouraging the patient to observe something. In the other, it's the experimenter. So coming from two different theoretical orientations and coming from one which was clinical and the other which was research, uh, coming to the same conclusion says to me there's something there. You know, and, and it's kind of, it's such a simple but such a brilliant observation that um, whenever you look at something, the Hawthorne effect, effect whenever you look at something, when you measure something, you're likely to influence it. I guess it goes back to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Yeah. And in, in clinical terms, it, it's impossible for people to be completely the same once they've observed themselves as they might be seen by an outsider. Right. Once you've been able to take that step outside yourself and see you as other people do, it's, by the way, a very tough step. Um, for some people, an impossible step. But once you're able to see yourself objectively, you're no longer the same person. That's right. And if that other person is your therapist, then that is part of the therapeutic change process. But one it of the roles of happen except in therapy. Exactly. That's what, what, very often that ability to step outside yourself and look at yourself yeah. for many people won't happen except in therapy. Mm -hmm. Well, there are other places where it does happen. And it, certainly, it happens in lots of places, but for some people, right. It it's like somebody goes in and observes kids in a classroom or observes people functioning. That observation, the fact that they're being observed can influence how they behave. Yeah, and, and I guess to put it more clearly, that all of us throughout life, part of experience is beginning to see ourselves more as other people see us. That's part of what life does to you. It sort of breaks down your capacity to be blind to your own faults as through life you stumble along and you realize things about yourself you didn't realize before. But some one of the things that characterizes patients and differentiates them from other people is they may be less good on their own at learning about themselves through experience. Yeah. They keep on making the same mistakes over and over again without being aware of the fact that they're contributing to the problems in their life. And one of the beautiful things about therapy when it works is that someone who begins to see their contribution to their troubles begins to understand that it's not all happening to them, but they're making some of the troubles happen because of their own behaviors. So for some people, that only happens in therapy. And when it does happen in therapy, it's a very beautiful moment. What you just said in the past minute should be typed up, framed, and put on a plaque in every therapy wow. office. No, seriously, because you said it in ordinary language without any jargon. Really, very, very much to the point. Um, and it's it's one of the key aspects of therapy. How it's done can, can vary. But before getting more into the therapeutic situation, let me just throw, throw in one other kind of a phenomenon that talks about um, how people change when they're being observed by themselves or, or by others. And that's the famous Westinghouse study 
that brought about the Hawthorne effect. So the Westinghouse plant did some study many years ago. Uh, it, was a, it was a Hawthorne, uh, was the name of the plant, where they wanted to see whether changing in lighting would increase productivity. So they changed the lighting and lo and behold, productivity changed. But then they later found that it wasn't the lighting, but the notion on the part of the workers that they were being observed that created the change. So it's a very, very simple, powerful kind of um, change mechanism. Yeah, I, I think that it, it goes to the question of social learning more generally, that our behaviors are very much shaped by what we're born with, but they're also very much shaped by the environments we live in. And that people's behavior is very much shaped by the surround, the social surround, what they see and learn in their families, what they see and learn amongst peers, amongst um, uh, fellow, fellow workers, um, friends, and that the, um, the norm of behavior that a person has is, is partly something he brings to it, but something that's also influenced by the outside. And I think what therapy does is bring a new outside. Mm -hmm. The forms of behavior that were shaped by the previous social structure of the individual are now augmented and maybe contradicted and, and, and maybe extended by the fact that there's a new observing process. Yeah. It's the observing of the therapist, and then that becomes an internalized as the patient begins to see himself as the therapist may see him. And as he begins to notice things about himself that previously would never have been made conscious. Well, you know, an interesting kind of thing is, and, and I don't know the answer to this because I don't know the ins and outs of, of psychoanalytic therapy, at least in real clinical depth. You've been doing it your whole life, Morvin. What? You've been doing psychodynamic therapy your whole life. Well, okay, but here's an experience I had. It's a different language. Yeah, that's true. But here's an experience I had when I was much younger. And I went into therapy and it was to see whether I would be, I was interviewed to see we, whether I would be a suitable patient for psychoanalysis or psycho, I'm not sure whether it was psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic therapy. I was very young. I knew very, very little about that. And it turns out that um, I didn't qualify. And I was a very naive kid. And the only thing now in retrospect, or that's the, at least one of the main things, is that I didn't have a metacognitive capacity. I, I, was, I didn't step back and observe myself. I was not, quote, introspective um, enough. So the question becomes, um, how... How do you know when somebody's introspective? Whoever whoever evaluated you was an idiot, uh, but wow. you, were, you were introspective enough. But the uh, my other joke about this is that the only people who um, really qualify for psychoanalysis are the people who don't need it. Okay, I appreciate the compliment, but believe me, I was naive. Take my word for it. Um, it's, somebody, hard, it's hard to picture, Martin. Well. One thing you need to, to be aware of, Alan, people change. Thank you. <laughs> We're all about I, I just, I think you were born wise. Oh, no, I was not. Anyway, flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> 
Um, now you made me lose my train of thought. Oh, okay. So how do you know when somebody is self-observing or self-criticizing in therapy? Let's talk. Let's talk clinically. Well, I I worry very much about people who criticize themselves a lot. I think that they're often the very toughest patients. They have a perverse motivation, unconscious motivation, not to let the therapy make them better because they don't deserve to to be better. Um, I find people are often very proud of their guilt, even though it's the thing that's holding them back the most. And I think that for me, a, a big part of therapy has been fighting what I call the superego triad of people who are very self-critical, who expect people to be very critical of them, and who are very critical of others. So I'm, I'm very much on the side of trying to, to help people graduate from being very self-critical to being self-observing yes. and self-monitoring right. and self-controlling. And the um, the idea that being feeling guilty is a sign of um, a higher moral stage of development or something, which is also in Freud. I don't believe that at all. I see guilt as, for the for the most part, a very primitive emotion, a very usually irrational emotion, very unconscious emotion. And that what our, what our job is, is to help the person graduate from guilt to healthy self-observation. Well, I, I do agree with I do agree with that. I'm not quite sure that I, I would agree with your, your interpretation that they're motivated to not you, you kind of inferred a motivation behind it. Yeah, I don't want to blame the victim, but the, the, the motivation would be that they, they're they not worthy of feeling better. Yes. And that anything in their life that helps them, anything in the treatment that's positive, is often then the cause of a rebound sense of guilt and depression. Yes. Yes. There are, clearly, there are some patients where you say something nice about them and they get very uncomfortable. And that may be a kind of a, a clinical clue that you are making an observation uh, of their competence. And it's like, no, no, I, I don't want to hear I don't want to hear that. Uh, yeah, sort of like I, on the one hand, I don't deserve the compliment. On the other, you don't really understand how bad I am. If you really knew me, you wouldn't be saying nice things about me because I know myself better than you possibly can. And I realize how terrible I am as a person. Yeah. But you see, I would interpret that as a self schema that has been to a great extent has been learned where views of oneself, and this is certainly psychoanalytic, but it's also sociological as well. Uh, views of oneself come from the reflected images of others. So if, if, the person is treated in a negative way and criticized a lot, either growing up in the family situation or by peers, they develop a negative schema early on, and schemas are very hard to change. And if you say something that's inconsistent with that schema, it doesn't compute. I think I would agree completely that there's a very large social component, but it also, I think, is probably true that people are born with different levels of intensity of uh, the capacity for anger and for guilt, two emotions that tend to go together quite a bit, and that some of it may be uh, innate, some of it may be nature, but however it starts, it certainly can have a very corrosive effect on the way the person sees themselves, the way they see the world, the way the world, they think the world sees them. Yeah. And this 
I think therapy for many people is a battle against the superego triad. Again, trying, as you, you stated in the beginning, sort of trying to substitute self-observation for self-criticism. Yeah. Self-observation and self-control help you adapt to the world and understand it better and wor work better within it, yeah. have better relationships. The self-criticism very often is more destructive than helpful. I think I'll give you a wonderful clinical example of, uh, of an experience I had with a patient. Um, and this was a, a, a person who um, was very self-critical. And during the course of the session, they, that they made a self-critical comment. And I did, then did an observation to try to get them to self-observe, saying, you notice what you said just now, you were criticizing yourself. And then they said, oh, I wasn't aware of that. Hmm. Damn it, I do this all the time. And then they went in from self-observation to self-criticism. It's, it's a beautiful example that the pointing out self-criticism in itself can be a very useful way of, and one of the expressions that Freud used for this is taking something that was previously egosyntonic and making it egodystonic. That a way of being that seemed to be completely natural through the process of self-observation fostered within the, the session becomes, oh, there I go again. And why why are I why do I constantly do the same pattern of being self-critical? How do you get them to shift into pure self-observation? Well, I'm not sure anyone is ever capable of pure self-observation. Or, or lessen the criticism. Yeah, but I think I mean, the, the, these terms, unfortunately, because everything about Freud has been tarred over the years, it's hard to use terms that he introduced, even when those terms are useful. But the idea that um, something that was previously egocentric, this is who I am, through the process of the therapist pointing out the behavior, its stereotype nature, what are the triggers that bring it out, gradually becomes egodystonic. You're able, and what that means is you're able to observe yourself rather than being completely full of yourself. You're able to see yourself and understand this is the way I am rather than to just embody it. It's well, what, you at the beginning called observing, what you at the beginning called observing ego. Yeah. But let me see if I can translate that jargon. Were, were you aware, I wish I could. Were you I wish aware I, that you were speaking in jargon? I hated it as I was saying it. So you correct. <laughs> translate it into common uh, useful speech. I will, I will observe so to help you to self-observe. Um, becoming aware of what is causing the problem in your life can motivate you to change what you're observing and to be to be different to be different that it may be automatic and you may not have think, thought that there was anything wrong with it but with the help of a therapist there's the realization well maybe this is why i am having problems in this aspect of my life it's hard to be motivated to want to be different if you don't first have the self-observation to realize what you really like. And most of us go through life blithely unaware of what we really like. And the more we can develop and the capacity to see ourselves as others may see us,
the more we're able to smooth off the rough edges. I like when you don't speak in jargon. Thank you. No. I needed your observing ego in order to correct. So, okay. So what are the take-home messages here? Take-home messages for the therapist. Very useful, and especially for people who are trained in two inflexible, a cognitive, behavioral, manualized way of looking at things. One of the take-home messages is that the behavior in the sessions is itself enormously valuable in, in helping the therapist understand the troubles the patient has and being able to convey to the patient some explanation for previously unexplained problems they're having. The, 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 the stuff that happens between the two individuals in the sessions are kind of paradigm for helping to improve observing ego. Oops, I slipped there. You you started out with observing ego, Morvin. Sorry. Okay, well. <laughs> simple bottom line. Self-observation can help in producing change. Self-criticism perpetuates the problematic issues in a person's life. Yeah. Which exactly. may be, and self-criticism may be directly related to self and, and, the problems. and one of the things that therapy does almost better, maybe better than any other human relationship, is to help people improve their self-observation skills, the accuracy of their self-observations. Well, that's interesting because very often when I'm working with somebody and it's um, within a C CBT framework, I'll say, you know, there are certain automatic thoughts you have that are creating problems, and you may not be aware of them. So a good way to start is to pay attention to these thoughts. And we talk about them in therapy. You know, it's like, uh, you are so slavishly dependent on everybody liking you, uh, where it's impossible. So just be aware of that. And then they become more aware and well, even before they do this, they'll say, yeah, but if I'm aware of it, then what do I do? And I would say, just let's take the first step. Just become aware. Yeah, and I, I said the exact same thing. Just becoming aware <laughs> changes everything. Sometimes. Yeah. And the other thing, it, it, discuss the role of diaries in helping people become aware yeah. outside the session. Yeah. Or, or you know, the... A key aspect, the technique in CBT, are the thought records, where you write down how you felt and you write down what the thought was that may be behind that, and then you change the thought and then you notice how you feel, which is good, which is fine. And see, the, the only problem I have with that is CBT therapists do this without knowing what, why they're doing it, without knowing the process behind it. It's like, Oh, okay. I'm learning to be a physician. So um, here's what I need to do according to the Merck manual. Um, I don't know why I'm doing it, but I'm just following orders. And I think that's that's therapy, but it's not good therapy. Yeah, it doesn't make clear to the patient because it's not clear to the therapist that the process of doing this is helping you be more self-aware. And that the self-awareness is itself a powerful tool for for changing in the ways you want to change. Yeah. We have to stop. We have to stop, but I'm 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 thinking 
this big push toward meditation and self-observation um, is very, very popular. And it may or may not be related to this, but um, it's in essence it's it's practicing self-observation, but it's it's a very different form. It's a much more focal self-observation of perhaps breathing or focusing on thoughts, um, but it doesn't extend it. I don't think sufficiently to the notion of um, changing one's thoughts. But maybe that's a topic for some future discussion. Okay, well, you helped me self observe, I promise myself, not you, but myself to try to keep my jargon down through self observation. Well said. <laughs> we talk to you next week. Bye bye.